Dr. Geneva Speaks. Thank you for tuning in to Dr. Geneva Speaks, where you'll hear amazing leaders from across the nation and around the world. Your host, Dr. Geneva Williams, a cutting-edge, transformational leadership coach, hopes and believes this show will enlighten, entertain, and inspire you to make a difference in the world. So listen up as Dr. Geneva Speaks. everyone and welcome once again. This is Geneva and welcome as we take a look into the hearts and heads of leaders and the greater purpose they inspire in others. As you know, March is Women's History Month and I've had the pleasure to talk to some amazing, amazing women uh, during the past couple of weeks. And as you know, Women's History Month used to be Women's History Day, and then they made it into a week, and now it's a month, and it basically recognizes the contributions that women have made to this country and to the world. And so I just think it's fitting and appropriate as we look to inspire others to lead and make a greater impact on the community that we Uh, talk to women who, in fact, are making those positive kinds of impact and those kinds of things that make a difference in the community. And today I have someone who I have just admired for such a very, very long time, an educator, a business executive, a public speaker, a philanthropist, an author, whose career has really been dedicated to creating educational and economic opportunities for all. My guest is Dr. Vivian Carpenter, and her goal is to empower others to understand their potential for greatness through her writings, her speeches, her actions. She's a phenomenal woman. She has served as president of Atwater Entertainment Associates, Uh, She currently is president at Supreme Communications Group, LLC. Um, She's been an assistant dean and director of academic programs at Florida AMN University, a visiting professor of industrial engineering at U of M, which is her alma mater. She received her bachelor's and her master's and her Ph.D. from U of M and her, and she's done postdoctoral work at the University of Chicago in economics and public policy. She's a sharp sister. She's got heavy weight in the mind and in the heart. Her her um, academic training is in accounting. That's what her PhD is in. She's received awards from the National Science Foundation. She's doing postdoctoral. She got a postdoctoral fellowship from Ford Foundation. She's received the National Accounting Education Award, and she's just all over wonderful. She also happens to uh, have been an assistant professor of accounting at Wayne State University and deputy state treasurer in Michigan's Department of Treasury, as well as a senior consultant of Arthur Anderson. And most recently... Um, She's continued her writing. She has um, published a book, The Fifth Letter. It's a political thriller about the U.S. Supreme Court, Um, and it's phenomenal. 
and we want to hear more about that. But I first want to say hello to Dr. Vivian Carpenter. Hi, Viv. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and I want to thank you for this opportunity to be on your show. Well, thank you so much. It's our pleasure, and we applaud you. We applaud you, and and there's so much I, I just want to talk to you about. But, you know, Vivian, if we could start first with just sharing with our listening audience, of course, I've talked a lot about and introduced you in terms of all of your accomplishments, but tell us about Vivian Carpenter, where? Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Where were you born, and what kind of led you on the path to do all these wonderful things that you do today in the community? Well, I was born in Detroit. Went to Detroit public schools, and my life was largely impacted by my parents. Uh, my father, mm-hmm. in particular. My father was a locomotive engineer. He worked at Great Lakes Hill. Uh, he had an active life uh, in the city. And in some ways, uh, he brought me up to believe that I could be anything that I wanted to. And I think that's the greatest gift that any parent can give a child is the belief that they can be anything they want to. And so I pursued uh, the engineering school. Uh, with people telling me I couldn't do it because I was a girl, and I couldn't do ah. it because I had Detroit public schools, and I had not been trained to compete against all of the white males that I had to compete against in that engineering school. But my my parents, the community, my aunt uh, in Atlanta made me believe in myself, and every time it looked like I might not be successful, uh, there's something negative that works with me in terms of my not wanting them to be right. And so mm-hmm. I would okay. down, go to the library. Uh, I, I, I only skipped classes when I was really behind. And if I skipped the class, I was skipping the whole day to catch up. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so it was a, the, the, the spiritual base of me uh, coupled with the belief that other people gave me to understand my potential and and really the blessing of having had parents that didn't make me feel like there was any inferiority within me. And so I was protected for a long time from any effects that racism or sexism might have had on my career. Mm-hmm. And that came so, from the inspiration and support of particularly your parents. That came from my parents, and it also came from my aunt. And mm-hmm. as I grow, grew older, it came from my reading. I mean, I have an extensive uh, library, and I've, uh, I've read a lot in terms of the, the literature on, on reaching your human potential. But also I have a very broad religious and spiritual library. Uh, and as I have gotten later, uh, in life of my career, I have spent more time in that area learning and uh, practicing meditation and, and growing within. Mm-hmm. So so you went and you did your um, undergrad work at U of M in engineering? 
Yes, I was the first African-American to graduate in industrial engineering and operations research department. Uh, okay. I was lucky enough to do that in three and a half years. And mm. it must have been around 1990, uh, the school was about to write a big article saying that I was the first African-American uh, medicine school when they found out, no, there was another black female 17 years before me. So there was 17 years between me and the uh, first African-American female admitted to the College of Engineering. Uh, And so that was a great experience for me because what engineering did for me is it taught me how to think. It taught me how to approach a problem that I could not conceptualize the entire answer to when I first sat down, but to take one logical step after another with the goal in mind until I was able to come up with the answer or accomplish the goal. And that's what I got from engineering, is understanding that I could get through and come out on top if I just made one logical step after another and never lost my faith. Mm-hmm. And and that's what engineers do, right? I mean, we hear so much about engineering, and, and I think I heard you say that you graduated with an industrial engineering degree. What is that? What What is an engineer, and what's an industrial engineer do? Tell us about that. Uh, the bottom line is that you learn about human performance. You learn about how a plan is put together. You learn... How, much, how hard you can work a person before it's not functional to work them anymore or to lay out a plant so that it is operated in an optimal uh, manner. Um, when I, one of my first jobs was with Ford Motor Company, and it was on a project that they call Shake, and that was the beginning of uh-huh. the aerodynamic design for the car. And so you learn, so I learned how to put together, and I was part of a team to put together the components of a car to provide design specifications uh, for Ford Motor Company to design their cars. And that's part of how they're designed now. So you learn how to do big projects that impact on the, um, the development of factories and the design of different items so that they are more functional for the human being. Mhm, mhm. And so then you left undergrad and you got your uh you went on to get a master's in was it in business? It was an it was an MBA. Yeah, it was an MBA. MBA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what happened with that when I graduated I must have had offers from about two hundred firms and one of those oh, firms goodness. that signed and dined me was Arthur Anderson. Uh-huh. And they were going to make me a consultant. And uh, my first husband, uh, I was widowed at 25, was Butch Carpenter. He was with uh, a competitor CPA firm. And when I got the offer, he said, you cannot go to work for a major county firm and you don't know a debit from a credit. And he said, if you want, <laughs> yeah, he said, I don't care what I tell you. He said, you'll never make partner. You'll never be 
able to really go the distance with the firm unless you have your MBA. So he said, so if you really want to go to work for Arthur Anderson, you need an MBA. And mm-hmm. so I okay. down Arthur Anderson's job offer, and Arthur Anderson turned around and made me a second job offer saying, this is what we'll pay you when you finish. And it was more money than I had ever thought about making and so um, I went back and finished my MBA. I was able to pass the PTA on the first city and went to work for Arthur Anderson for two years. And it was a great learning experience. But the reward for doing a good job was more work, harder work, and they were uh-huh. getting, and they were, had me traveling. And I worked so much that they had to even pay me for my vacation because of the demands of the job that I was So at one point I had to decide if I was going to give everything to Arthur Anderson and try to pursue the partnership, or did I want to make room to have a family in my life? Ah, okay. And I decided I needed to make room for a family or I wouldn't have a completely successful life without having had a family. And mm-hmm. so I decided to uh, go on leave from Arthur Anderson and go to Michigan to work on the Ph.D. in, in, in accounting. Uh, and so that was the path there. That's phenomenal. But, but, that kinda, but I kind of got challenged by life at that point. Um, my first husband was a... Um, was in was in, in law school. He had became a manager at Cooper's and Library, uh, and he fell out dead on the basketball court. You know, when you mm-hmm. go through life, none of us get to go through life without having the rug pulled up from up from up under us at some point. And mm-hmm. that was the first major rug pulling for me. And mm-hmm. it was going through that life trauma that I had to really go deep within myself and for the first time really figure out where I was on a spiritual level and what my relationship with God was going to be. And going through that so young, I had to realize that either I was going to have to get up and operate from a basis of faith in my life or I was never going to quite be the same. Uh-huh. And knowing that that's something that my first husband wouldn't want me to just allow myself to be beaten down by life, I had to rise from that. And I had, had to, to put ri- my life back together. Had to rise up. Well, we're gonna, we're I had gonna to rise. Had to rise up. Well, we're going to delve a little deeper into that and particularly talk about uh, not only your entrepreneurial work, but you're, you are a philanthropist. And so I want to talk a little bit more about that. If you're just joining us, uh, my guest today is Dr. Vivian Carpenter, educator, business executive, entrepreneur, public speaker, philanthropist, author, a phenomenal woman for this Women's History Month. We're going to, be, we're going to take a short break and be right back with you. I keep talking. 
So, again, if you're joining us, uh, we're just delighted to have this um, terrific month of where we're talking to phenomenal women, and we've had a chance to talk to women, as you know, from all across the country. But this week, this month, we're focusing on awesome women in Detroit, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, community leaders, business leaders, um, philanthropists, speakers, writers, authors. And today, my guest is Dr. Vivian Carpenter, who fills all of those slots. <laughs> she certainly is an entrepreneur. Um, she's an educator, um, gone through U of M for her bachelor's, her master's, her Ph.D., all in the field and the sphere of accounting and engineering and those areas that frequently you don't hear uh, many African Americans in, but she's been a trailblazer, one of the first out of the uh, U of M to um, make that accomplishment. And we were talking with her particularly about um, the influences in her life from with her parents. And just before the break, uh, uh, Dr. Carpenter Vivian was sharing with us about how she was going. She needed to go deeper into herself as she was making some decisions through her leadership journey. Vivian, why don't you tell us a, a little bit more about about that and then how you got into all that you do today because you're not only your, you know, just the, the queen of um, uh, accounting and, and business, but you run your own companies and, and you've gotten into quite a bit as well as being an author. Tell us about deep into yourself and how it got you to where you are now. I think where I left off was the crisis of going through my first husband's death and being not to my knees and having to get up. And during that experience, I almost forgot who I was. And I think that everyone who is going to be successful has that. And the only difference between successful people and unsuccessful people is the successful people are able to get back up after they take that back out punch. It will mm -hmm. happen to everyone. Resiliency is the key, and it's the only difference really between those that are successful and those who aren't, because everybody has that low moment in life. And mm -hmm. I remember, you know, at the moment when I decided that I had to come back for that, I had to go back to school, I had to complete my incomplete. And it was almost the day after I completed my incomplete phone call uh, indicating that Governor Milliken, uh, that, that Lauren Monroe had been appointed the first black state treasurer of the state of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Lauren Monroe wanted to appoint me as wow. his deputy. And I was mm -hmm. shocked because I was 25, just got to thinking that my life would never be okay. But having completed everything that I needed to complete to be able to go forward and finding out that there were people positioned in places that I would have never imagined that were ready to pull me through to the next level. Mm -hmm. But if I had gone down and not come back up at the right time, 
I would have missed that window. And I think my life has been full of magic windows that I was ready to walk through, and there were people who were waiting to help me because they Mm -hmm. saw that I was ready to take the next step. And Mm -hmm. so at 26, I became deputy state treasurer uh, of the state of Michigan with six departments reporting Mm -hmm. to me, and there were six supervisory levels between me and the next black person in the Department of Treasury. So I think that my my first husband's death was part of getting ready for that because I had been so traumatized by his death that there was really nothing they could do mm-hmm. <laughs> that would mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. really throw me off balance because I had already mm-hmm. been taken there, you know. Okay. Okay. And so that was a great learning experience. Uh, Governor Milliken had his personal legal counsel train and coach me. And so I was able to learn a large organization from the top, and coupled with that, there was the politics. And I was able to meet a lot of the important legislators that we have today at a point in time when everybody was big nobody. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, and so I, I, I was blessed with a large contact base and also by the fact that Governor Milliken and um, – and, 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 and our mayor were very good friends at that, at that time, Coleman Young. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and they encouraged me to support the activities of the city, and they encouraged me to try to figure out how to be helpful to the city. So it was a good time for me to come through. I ended up going to the water board, uh, working for Charlie Beckham, who I had a great deal of respect for, and uh, But in the middle of that, I got another great opportunity uh, from the University of Michigan and was considering leaving when my department told me that that was, uh, the accounting department told me that was the last semester I could keep my credits for my Ph.D. So I was uh, going to decide, what am I going to do? Am mm-hmm. I going to become the internal auditor for the University of Michigan? Or am I mm-hmm. going to complete my Ph.D.? And that required me to sit down, put my dream out for my life, and go the pros and cons and to ask myself, what is going to take you to the accomplishment of your goal? And I realized I was going to have to put my blue jeans back on okay. and start and go- carrying a lunch again. <laughs> Okay, and, and go, go back to back and give yeah, give up my salary, give up my big salary. You know, I had a car that they washed, drives, and parked. But if I wanted yeah. a dream, this dream it required a sacrifice. Right, and and, and, and Vivian, so so what was that dream that you wanted? What was the dream? I wanted to get to the point where I could get to the boardroom, I wanted to get contributions back to the community. You know, I wanted to evolve to the the, the fullest person, and and, and my Ph.D. was part of that. My Ph.D. was part of getting it, but getting it with the freedom to move around and getting it Mm -hmm. with the freedom to be my own boss. Okay. 
Okay. Because when you get a Ph.D. Uh, and you take that professorship route, it comes with a fair amount of freedom to decide what direction are you taking. And I decided I wanted to be an internationally recognized expert in my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. That took okay. me there. And All right. before it was over, I got National Science Foundation. I could travel the world presenting papers. And I had a career that I was happy with as an academic until mm-hmm. the casino issue with Detroit came on and I was part of the group that laid out a strategy for bringing the three casinos to Detroit and trying to create the jobs and bring in something that would be big enough to deal with the underlying financial problems of the city, which because I was deputy state treasurer, I was well aware of that they had been festering since the late 1940. Mm-hmm. What happened to Detroit? Was was in process for a long time. So, so this was your your work with the At Order Group, the At Order um, Entertainment, yes, Entertainment Group. So, so tell us a little bit about that. Many in our listening understand the dynamics of all that. The casinos that came to Detroit for the first time ever, and then you being right in the middle of that as an African American woman. Um, what did what did you learn through that process? What happened? Well, when I did the postdoc at the University of Chicago, I learned about the economics of regulation and about what it takes to get political things through a process. And mm-hmm. so I was part of the group that helped uh, do the constitutional amendment to put the three casinos in Detroit but I also okay. was the person in our group who had the Republican Party politics. I was the mm-hmm. person who could call into Governor Engler's office and talk to staffers. And I was the person who actually knew a number of the key Republican legislators who were on the spot and helped lobby to get the issue through. Because you have to remember mm-hmm. when we did this, we did have a Republican governor Republican-dominated legislature. And Mm -hmm. so those relationships were important, but there were a number of people who made great contributions to make that happen. It wasn't just one person, but I was one of the key people who Mm -hmm. did a lot Mm -hmm. of the the behind-the-scenes to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And as Mm -hmm. a result, I ended up becoming chair of the board of Motor City Casino, even though I was very careful to keep that quiet. Okay. <laughs> because I like and driving why, myself. And why was that? Because I like driving myself, and my ego doesn't necessarily need the attention. What does that mean? What does that mean when you say you like driving yourself and you didn't want the attention or need the attention? What, as a leader, what, what what are you saying when you say that? What, does, I what think that that's something. says, mm-hmm. what that says is that I observe the executives at Mandalay Bay, the top level, the president, the legal counsel. I observe them coming to Detroit, mm-hmm. uh, interacting with people as normal people. I have dinners at Motor City Casino and put me at the head of the table 
with none of the staff knowing that they had the they had the vice president and legal counsel also at that table, that they had the president at that table. And I came to understand that I could drive myself around and go to a lot of people and have a fairly normal life as chair of the casino if I just behaved normally. Now, the downside mm-hmm. of that is that I had a hard time getting a park at Motor City Casino because mm-hmm. a lot of people <laughs> heard of Dr. Carpenter, but they didn't necessarily know what I looked like, and I don't necessarily uh-huh. look like Dr. Carpenter, okay. you know. Okay. And All so... Right. My ego didn't require for everybody to know who I was. Mm-hmm. You know, I I did not. I think I think the majority of that staff didn't really know me on site, and that was fine with me. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I, I like to get to know people as people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's interesting because in in in. in Several of the con- many of the conversations, in fact, that I've had leaders, they talk about uh, this uh, aspect of uh, humility um, that I, I think you're talking about. That um, you know, the observing, the the getting to know, hearing other people's story, that the priority is put on that, and keeping the ego in check so that you're able to and hear what other people are saying and doing. Do you think that's an important characteristic for uh, leaders to have this humility? I think anybody who is going to be really successful in life is constantly struggling with keeping their ego intact and making decisions from the right place. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy sometimes uh, to get a an overview sense of self if other people are trying to put you there. But I think if you're really going to lead, you have to understand everything and everybody's emotion that's around you, and you have to value everybody who's around you. Because mm-hmm. I strongly believe that everybody had comes to this earth with a valuable contribution that they're supposed to make. For some people, it's just being the best cook, the best mother, the best gardener, whatever. Everybody, I think, mm-hmm. has a unique contribution supposed to make. And within an organization, everybody who's there has an important mm-hmm. contribution to make. And you have to be able to hear everybody and weigh everybody's story if you're going to be a good leader. So I mm-hmm. think humility is a part of a great leader. And all of the, in, in my experience, it's been the more successful and the higher up uh, some people are in the organization, the less ego they may have. Now, for some people, it doesn't work like that, let's be clear. Mm-hmm. But, for, mm-hmm. but for a lot of people who are very, very successful, uh, they are humble people. They are good yeah. people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, and they got to be where they are because they respect everybody and they have earned the respect of those who have agreed to follow them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, one of the challenges is, well, how do you stay humble? How do you be humble? Do you have any tips? 
or uh, lessons that you've learned um, that that can help keep people focused and, and on the right track and, and be humble and be able to be open and to hear other people? I think, for me, I think God does it. I think periodically okay. he puts events in my life that knock me back to my knees. And mm-hmm. if I'm going to get through it, if I'm going to take those hard punches, and all leaders are required to take hard punches. Nobody is taking any more hard punches than Obama right now, okay? Mm-hmm. Any leader who is going to be great has to take hard punches, and they have to figure out how they are going to be centered and grounded and get through the challenges. And for mm-hmm. me, it's been developing my spiritual base. You know, I Mm -hmm. am a trustee Mm -hmm. at Hartford Memorial Baptist Church. My church Mm -hmm. has been a a big, big part of that. And, and, you know, and and every time you go into battle, you're not going to win. Nobody Mm -hmm. does. But Mm -hmm. I remember when when my uh, tenure was being turned down at Wayne, and there was one sermon that Pastor Adams gave that was so great where he talked about, you know, you think it, you know, you're this or that. He wasn't talking to me. He was preaching in general about people thinking that they are so deserving of this, that, and the other. But he said, if you are put in a position of battle, even if you don't win the battle, shouldn't you be thankful that God picked you for that position to play in the battle? Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. you know, that sermon changed my whole perspective in terms of how I was feeling about why I was going through. And I ended up saying, why shouldn't I be the one that's being challenged? You know, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. have National Science Foundation. I have a Ph.D. from Michigan. I have a postdoc from the University of Chicago. I should be the one who's challenged, and I should be thankful that I was picked for that position of challenge. Mm-hmm. And so it is being humble about what you have, why you have it, and understanding that sometimes what you have is just your tools for battle. Mm-hmm. And you should be thankful that you were giving such a large um set of tools to work with and that's what I think about a lot of the blessings that I have in life that I've been given a lot of tools and weapons to deal with as I go through and navigate the challenges in life Mm -hmm. and you certainly have used so many of those tools in giving back to the community and having a positive impact I, I, I really want you to share with our um, listening audience, your your latest venture, at least that I'm aware of, um, your latest uh, philanthropy work where you um, organized a tremendous community response to help a to help uh, um, music hall, which is a, an, a cultural institution in Detroit. Um, Tell us, tell our listening audience, many of whom are listening in from places all around the country, what what that was all about. 
Well, at this point in my life, I don't give to everything, but I try to pick out a few things that I'm going to really try to put some effort into and try to make a big difference in. And this year, as a board member on the music hall, I became aware of the fact that the music hall was at risk of closing if it didn't raise $1.7 million and find a way to get a hedge fund out of its uh, debt. And so, and, and I knew this had to be done by May. I had a conversation with my husband who had picked up his saxophone, and mm-hmm. we realized that we had some unique uh, gifts and talents and contact bases to be able to take on this challenge. And a lot of people don't know that the music hall is a 501c3. It is a charity. It has Mm -hmm. stepped in and provided music instruction to Detroit public school classes in the face of a lot of the music classes and dance classes being completely stripped. And and that's important because I, at this point in my life, understand that you have to develop the whole person. The music mm-hmm. is just as important as being able to do the graphing calculator. A lot mm-hmm. of people don't know that the University of Michigan marching band is 35% engineers. So dealing with this other component is critical because if you rip music out of the city of Detroit, I feel like you're ripping out its heart. And okay. a lot of those people that I want to be able to get to engineering school won't be able to soothe their soul to do the other thing if you take the music away from them. Music is critical to the churches in Detroit. I have watched how our church choir has gone down in size over the years along with Detroit, along with music being pulled out. I think we have to stop that. I think we've got to get the arts back in the curriculum. We've got to get the music back into the curriculum. We've got to develop the whole person. When you look at Music Hall and the number of entertainers who have been there, the fact that uh, Aretha Franklin's father's church was um, used to used to work through the Music Hall, the fact that Tyler Perry had a stage that could help him get launched. Music Hall needed to be saved for the community, and John and I recognized that we were uniquely positioned to take on that challenge, and it feels good when you take on a challenge that you know is something special that you're supposed to do, and Mm -hmm. you galvanize the support and get other people to see it and do it, and I feel blessed that we were in an opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. And so what did you do? Tell us what you did. We and- put out a $100,000 challenge grant to the community to raise. Uh, at initially, it was 400000 There were a lot of people who thought that our challenge grant uh, wasn't appropriate, that there wasn't any way that we would be able to raise $400,000 in the community in this economy. And Mm -hmm. what we found out within a week, we had raised the (laughs) Mm $400,000. And it was wonderful Mm -hmm. to see people like Bill Picard step Mm -hmm. up to the table with a huge uh, 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 
contribution to the music hall. We saw Blue Cross Blue Shield step up mm-hmm. with a huge contribution. So we blew past that in a week. And so we said, uh-huh. oh, the goal is too <laughs> low because at this point you need unreasonable goals to see God's magic work in your life. And so at that point we said our goal was too little. We should try to make sure that they have the $1.7 million that they need for the first page, uh, first phase of the campaign. And we took on that unreasonable goal with only about six weeks to get it done. Mm-hmm. And, did you make and it, it happened. We mm-hmm. made it. Mm-hmm. We made mm-hmm. it. And it felt good. And the number of people who came to help, DTE, Masco, mm-hmm. Lear Corporation, mm-hmm. uh, I, oh, and of course, W and Ford. And of course, these are many organizations and corporations in Detroit. Vivian, why do you think they came? Why do you think, in the midst of you know Detroit just coming out of you know the, the dire economic straits, trying to struggle, the bankruptcy, poverty, all that's going on in Detroit? How were you able to galvanize the community and raise that kind of money in a relatively short time? What, what happened? I think I think you would have to ask Faye Nelson to confirm who is over the DTE Foundation. But Faye told me that it was a fact that John and I stood up with our own personal money and challenged mm-hmm. the community at the local level and corporate level with such a large personal contribution is what made the difference. And John and I put in tremendous hours personally putting it together. It was the personal commitment to help solve the, 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 the issue that made that made them come along. And mm-hmm. so I just know what they told me, you know, mm-hmm. and I also know that my husband made a lot of phone calls, you know. And so uh-huh. when you've been okay. doing people, so when you've been doing things for a long time and helping him for a long time, other people come out and support, and other people come out and support when they see that there's a good cause and the right energy is being put behind it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you invested your own personal time, treasure, talent in this effort, and it sparked others to come to to the table. It certainly did. We even had Aretha Franklin call and do a public service announcement that we didn't even ask for. She did it Mm -hmm. and and paid for the uh, recording of her own and just sent it to us to use. That kind of thing happened. Uh, Mm -hmm. Carmen Harlan, I asked Carmen Harlan if she wanted tickets Carmen Harlan was our MC, and she said, you want to sell out, don't you? I'll buy my own ticket, you know? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. it was, I think it was because we were putting in that other people decided that they were put in too and they wanted to be part of it, and they saw that we were going to make it, that we were going to put in the energy, the time, and the money to mm-hmm. make it be a success. And, and I think, too, the attention 
that you brought to it because there was a lot of media attention. You know, you mentioned Carmen Harlan, who's a, uh, a well-known local uh, news reporter here, um, uh, anchor woman here, um, and others. And there was just so much media Shawn, attention. Shawn, yeah, Shawn yes. Wilson, you know, we, we ended mm-hmm. up getting uh, media support. We got a lot of people who put in time, energy, contacts, and when you have a group of people pulling together, you get synergy. You get more yes. than what yes. the individual pieces would have been along. Mhm, mhm, mhm. Well, again, I, I just uh, so admire the, um, uh, you know, the philanthropy that you and, and your husband and and others in Detroit um, bring bring to the table because it's that kind of galvanized uh, spirit that can make a difference. And and as we saw, you know, just raising that kind of, uh, you know, those kind of resources and helping to save a cultural institution in, in Detroit, again, we just... We just thank you so, so much about that. And, you know, I don't want to, I, I know our time is, is running out. I do not want to leave our conversation without having uh, you share with us about your latest uh, writing masterpiece, uh, The Fifth Letter. Tell us about The Fifth Letter. The Fifth Letter is a novel about the first African-American female on the U.S. Supreme Court. And mm. I spent seven years of my life researching the this, this Supreme Court, researching black history, trying to put together and learning how to write, how to write creative, uh, mm-hmm. how to write a one-word sentence that would draw people in. I spent mm-hmm. the last seven years trying to write something where I could entertain and educate at the same time. And I am extremely happy with what I have produced with the fifth letter. I ended up on my hardcover, and by the way, it's available in ebook, softcover, and hardcover on Amazon.com. I was able to get U.S. Senator Bob Graham, who was chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, committee during 911, to give me endorsement for the um, hardcover. I was able mm-hmm. to get Gregory Allen Howard, who is screenwriter for Remember the Titans, mm-hmm. um, and Ali, to give me his endorsement, as well as my editor, who was a, who was a New York Times best-selling novelist, William Martin, who wrote the Law mm-hmm. Constitution and the Leakin Letters. Uh, he beat me up for three years to mm-hmm. uh, produce this. And I just hope that people would take the time to read it. I think that I have to have a grassroots push on this book. Mm-hmm. It has a love story in it. It has an appropriate collection of dead bodies. It is an assassination attempt. And mm-hmm. it is also a book that at some level will get a person to think about the issue of rational self-interest versus enlightened self-interest. A lot of our economic system, what we have taught our business leaders, is based on a platform of just rational self-interest. Catherine is is required to think about enlightened self-interest. I think our founding fathers who went through a lot 
of back and forth trying to get the Constitution through. Um, she is forced to think about life self-interest, and it considers the most important question facing the nation today. Who is a person with inalienable rights in the United States? And I just want people to think about the fact that in the beginning, poor white men were not considered persons, only property owners. In the beginning, we had women who were not considered persons, and we had slaves who were only considered three-fifths of a person. So it deals with this this issue of who is a person and explores what happens uh, to our national self-interest when we mm-hmm. fully look at the issue of the corporation being a person. So it's doing a lot, but I entertain you while okay. I now, these issues. Now, Vivian, this is a, a political thriller uh, of, and, and about the U.S. Supreme Court. What, what inspired you to, to write about this? What, what took you on well, this? What took me on my path is that my maiden name is Thomas. My grandfather's uh-huh. name was Clarence Thomas, and I had an uncle who spent the last five years of his life researching our family history and giving me a one-page summary of an explosive event in my family history that I used to create a 1940s memoir that's tucked in the middle of this book called Hattie's Story. And okay, now, so, now Vivian... Vivian, let me just ask you, are you talking about Clarence Thomas, the who currently sits on the Supreme Court? I'm talking about I'm talking about my grandfather, Clarence Your grandfather. Thomas, who died before I was born. But I'm okay. also not claiming any relationship to the sitting justice. I oh, will only okay. say that my that my known family roots can be traced within twenty miles of his known family roots, but I am not oh. at all trying to claim a relationship. Oh, all okay. I did was for my family history. And if somebody else thinks my family history is theirs, that's their issue, not mine. Okay. All right. So so what really inspired you and propelled you was, you, you know, you wanted to search and find out and, you know, look at your own family history. That kind of took you down this path. Yeah, and my, my, my uncle spent the last five years of his life uh, researching the family history, trying to see if there was a link, and he ended mm. up giving me an explosive summary uh, in August mm. of of 2005, and he mm-hmm. ended up, I ended up speaking at his funeral on my birthday, the mm-hmm. next November in 2005, and that's when... I decided to pick up, and I told him he should stop mm. looking at a relationship. He should just mm-hmm. write a good work of fiction that, uh-huh. and that's what I took on as the mission. Okay, a good right. piece of fiction that educates, and whether or not there's any relationship, and I, I guess you know, I'm not really look. I'm not looking for a relationship. I'm looking for, a <laughs> and I think that's what my readers right. should be looking. A good story. So a good story, and certainly you've given us enough to tantalize, I'm sure, um, many folk who are listening to um, 
to to read this book. It sounds uh, really great, a political thriller. And and again, and if there's anybody um, there listening who doesn't know who Robert Smalls is, yes, that's okay. a little known Black history fact that all of us should know. So okay. that's the reason to read my book. If you don't know who Robert Smalls is, you should be reading my book. All right. Well, see now, see you giving. We've got a political thriller. We've got some black history facts that we can uncover. We've got the search for family roots. I mean, everything is in this book. So I just want our listening and I got a audience love story. to, again, you got a love, I got a love story. story. I got a love story between our, our sitting Supreme Justice and the chair uh-huh. of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who happens to be a strong black man. Okay. All right. Well, this political thriller is about uh, the first African-American woman on the U.S. Supreme Court and all of the challenges and struggles and politics and everything that goes on, including some incredible black history facts. It's the fifth letter. And and did I hear you say you can? It's on Amazon and it's an ebook as you can, well. Yeah, you you can get it on Amazon.com. You can get it at Harper Memorial Bookstore. You can also get it oh. at the bookstore at the Charles Wright African American Museum. Okay, so that's no. in Detroit. But for those who are listening to us from all across the country, all you have to do is. The easiest place to get it, the most cost-effective, is on Amazon.com. However, if you give the fifth letter of Vivian Carpenter to a Barnes & Noble and tell them to order it in, they can yeah. order it. It will cost $5 more, but you can get it. Oh, phenomenal. You know, it's, it's one of those must-reads. Now, Vivian, before we say goodbye, I do want to ask you, and I, I ask this of all my guests, um, you know, again, just a phenomenal career you've had, um, just, a, just a great way that you inspire and make a positive impact in the community. What do you want your legacy to be? I want my legacy to be finding a bridge for those students who are locked into Detroit public schools who have the skill levels. I want to find a bridge to help them find a way to their fullest potential. And But I want that not only for them, but I want that for really all of the people who are locked into the education system in the United States and through no fault of their own are not being given graphing calculators and the things that they need to be successful in this life. I would like to be part, and and I and maybe I can't do it all, but I would like to have left at least one step on the ladder to solving that issue for this nation and for Detroit in particular. And I have a particular vision for a whole campus to be at the lodge in Claremont that okay. meets the needs of those that are going to go to college, plus those who have special needs so that they are developed to their fullest potential. So it's not just one group that I'm interested in. I'm interested in a strategy for everybody who is caught in the system. Mm-hmm. So you have this vision in, in the lodge and 
um, what what Dr. Carpenter is referring to is an area in in Detroit that has a lot of space that could be used and and to turn it into something. I guess that I'm hearing in terms of your vision, a public um, that school campus, a public school campus. All right, and and a campus, a school. From what I'm hearing you say, that can provide all those opportunities to young people because, you know, that's that's what young people need. If they can get, you know, we have talented, creative young people. They just need the opportunity and that bridge, as you said, that bridge to right. that and opportunity. I, and, and, I, and I would like that campus to be strong enough so that it could pull from the entire metro area so that doctors who have children uh, who are school age who work at Henry Ford Hospital or who are on the way down the DMC, I would like a facility that provides the opportunity for all of these children to interact because the research is clear that when you have diverse skills on a team, that team tends to do better. And so we need to think about the teams that have the potential to go to college, but we also need to make room for those that might be uh, carpenters, plumbers, and other things. So it's mm-hmm. a very comprehensive thing that I would like to see happen. And maybe my job is just putting out a vision of what it can be. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. making my little contribution to making it happen at some point in the future. Well, your little contribution, um, as we've seen from your track, track record, uh, you, your little contribution into real dreams and real possibilities. Uh, Dr. Vivian Carpenter, educator, entrepreneur, public speaker, philanthropist, author, just such a, uh, a great, great time, great conversation with you. I just want to thank you on behalf of um, Detroiters, uh, those all across the country who you've impacted, young lives in particular, um, your work in helping to revive and save um, institutions, culture institutions. Thank you for being our guest today. And again, for those of you who want to get a good read, a good political thriller, uh, go to Amazon and get the fifth letter by author entrepreneur Dr. Vivian Carpenter. I want to say thank you again to our guests and stay tuned for and our thank you. next session. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Dr. Geneva Speaks. Dr. Geneva Williams, an expert facilitator and leadership coach, lecturer, and keynote speaker. For more information on Dr. Geneva, visit her online at www.drgenevaspeaks.com. That's drgenevaspeaks.com.